Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and if you haven't yet, we encourage you to follow us on Twitter, at PolicyCast, or subscribe on your preferred podcast service by visiting hkspolicycast.org. Today, we're speaking with Congressman Barney Frank, who represented the Massachusetts 4th District in the House of Representatives from 1980 until retiring in 2012. This fall, he's been teaching two classes here at the Kennedy School on legislating and legal equality for the LGBT community, respectively. Congressman, thanks for coming today. You're welcome. So I want to talk a little bit about the editorial you wrote earlier this year in the Boston Globe. You you were talking about the value of experience in, in a legislator. And, you know, we often hear the, you know, throw the bums out when we see congressional gridlock. But you're saying kind of the opposite. It's, it's the experienced legislators that are actually uh, getting things done. Yes, I uh, begin by saying that I have, uh, I can't think of many cases where there was a member of the state legislature or Congress, where, where I served, who seemed to me admirable in his or her first three terms, who uh, 12 or 14 years later was a bad person. Um, uh, people get more like what they were. I was actually writing it in, in, in defense, and in, in inefficient defense. I was supporting my good friend and former colleague John Tierney, who was a great legislator, who sadly lost the primary to this kind of wave of let's kick him out. And uh, uh, my general view was if someone is good, the longer he or she is there, the better. There was an end point. Uh, I did encounter several really impressive people who stayed too long and and were just enfeebled uh, mentally, physically, or both. And one of the Mm -hmm. reasons I retired, I had always said I wasn't going to stay beyond my 75th year because even if you think you're in great shape, you don't know and you don't know that you don't know. Right. Um, but the notion that uh, that experience in legislating is somehow a negative, when we don't think that anywhere else, uh, makes no sense. Um, one, you learn more about the substance. There's one particular point that I would hope people would understand who believe in kind of popular representation. One of the things you do as a legislator is to fight with the executive branch officials, the bureaucrats, and bureaucracy is a very respectable term. I don't use it negatively. I'm more of a, in the sense of a Max Weber, the bureaucracy has a very important role to play. Mm -hmm. But there's often a tension between the views of the bureaucracy at the center and the particular preferences of individuals in a particular area. Sometimes the latter are wrong, but sometimes they're not. And one of the things you learn how to do the longer you're there is to be a more effective advocate for the legitimate uh, uh, localized concerns of your representatives. Uh, but the other thing is, there's a profound political point here. It is true that Congress has stopped functioning, but blaming it on uh, the fact that uh, everybody's been there too long or uh, a plague on both the houses is fundamentally wrong and misreads the politics. Congress worked very well through 2010. Uh, when George Bush came to a Democratic Congress in 2008 and said, we're having a terrible crisis, he sent his Secretary of the Treasury and mm-hmm. Chairman of the Federal Reserve. And you're going to hear this, by the way, from Hank Paulson, uh, who was going to be here a week from the day we are talking. Right. Um, the Democrats responded totally cooperatively. He got more support from those of us in the Democratic side than his own party. Uh, you didn't read about total dysfunction until after the election in 2010, when a large number of Republicans who do not believe that government has a constructive function got into power and took over their party. So the reason for the dysfunction is not that people have been there too long, but frankly, that some people are there at all. 
So it seems like uh, a lot of the people that we associate with the dysfunction now are people with experience. There may be, uh, you know, the Tea Party ranks who are mostly new legislators, but um, they're making a political decision that dysfunction benefits them more. Exactly. And by the way, they are the newer members. Frankly, it is the older members who tend to be more skillful at compromising. You have to compromise when you're in a legislative body. Um, the people who led the demand for a shutdown of the government, uh, uh, the people who, who argued against raising the debt limit, they were the newer members, not the more senior ones. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned before, you know, there are sometimes situations where, uh, you know, someone has outlived their their, right. their role. How does a voter, you know, make that make that call? Oh, because not I'm being talking about people who become enfeebled, people who are oh, in, literally. In, in, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. When I, t- I I'm talking about people who who can't uh, function. Who I mean, there are people. I can think of some some great men. I mean, Mo Udall was a hero of mine when he was a congressman. I deeply regret. I think if he'd been the Democratic nominee for president in 1976, he would have. Uh, been reelected over Ronald Reagan, we'd have had a very different country. Mo got ill, he had severe Parkinson's, I believe, and sadly stayed too long. Mm-hmm. And uh, towards the end, he wasn't able to function. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see uh, John Dingle retire now. John's an extraordinarily able guy for 90, but he is 90 and he's slowing mm-hmm. down. He at least recognized it. No, I'm talking about where it's obvious that people cannot function anymore, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes. They, they stay on. I, I do think in the current era, the press is less likely to be protective of them. The class that you're teaching on legislating is a lot about your personal experience. Are there any headline takeaways that you can relate to students, that you're, you are relating to students? Uh, sure. And uh, one is precisely that, mm-hmm. that uh, however you start out, you tend to get better at the job up to a, uh, a certain point. Now, you can get to the point where uh, your tolerance for the stress and the compromise that's necessary gets too much. That's the way it was with me. And uh, mm-hmm. look, I started out, and when people would call me up, I was eager to help them, and I wanted to know what I could do for them. Uh, towards the end, uh, last couple of years, people would call, and my uh, silent thought was, "Why are you bothering me?" So I figured, well, now it's time to, uh, it, it's time to. Uh, not the best uh, characteristic. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll give you one. Uh, I had an opportunity to say this to some BBC interviewers yesterday. Uh, Lord Acton got it wrong, I think, in a democracy. His uh, dictum was absolute power corrupts. Um, in a Absolutely. dictatorship, um, yeah, where there's no check. But in a government of shared powers, I think uh, impotence is what corrupts. Uh, as I look at the Republican Party, and there have been periods when I could cooperate with them and not others, when there is a Republican president, the Republicans play a much more constructive role. Uh, when there's a Democratic president, they don't feel the need to. The Republicans cooperated with George Bush when he asked for things to deal with the uh, crisis. When uh, Barack Obama asked for the same thing, they took mean, a walk on him. No, I mean Republicans. No, Democrats cooperated with President no. Bush. I mean that um, the point I'm making now is that Republicans differ in their approach depending on who's the president. Mm -hmm. Their natural inclination is to be somewhat critical of government, particularly this current group. When Bush asked for help, yeah, the Democrats, you're right, were the major, we were in power. But we we cooperated with the Republicans. They were helping Bush. Mm -hmm. But when Obama became president, 
Democrats continued to support the president, but Republicans defected mm -hmm. because uh, uh, they weren't in power. So there, there was that. When, when, when people can say, look, we're not responsible for this, uh, they will act less so. Uh, the more important one is uh, a mantra that I, that I borrowed uh, from a 20th century figure. I call him a philosopher. He was actually a stand-up comedian. Younger people haven't much heard of him. His name was Henny Youngman. Mm -hmm. He was called the king of the one-liners. His fav famous one-liner was, back then, uh, it was fashionable for, for male comedians to make fun of their wives and mothers-in-law, et cetera. And uh, his most uh, famous, shortest joke in history, take my wife, please. Um, <laughs> but the one that was really quite profound was, how's your wife compared to what? I mean, that is the central question that I learned to pose every time I had a decision to make mm -hmm. in, in public life, compared to what? Because you're not in an ideal situation. And the need to accept the realities that you're in and do the best you can in the short term while preserving the ability to improve in the long term, I think that's, that's the key lesson. I, I, there's this video that I love watching. I think it's from back in 2007. You were serving as a speaker pro tem, I believe. Um, and uh, it was just, it's, it's a five-minute clip of a parliamentary procedure debate on the floor. Um, and I couldn't, it, it was, it was it, you were extremely frustrated with, uh, I believe it was a couple of Republicans who were, um, you know, trying to give parliamentary inquiries and point, points of order. And I could tell that as frustrated as you were, there was kind of a smile on your face. Well, like, here's the deal. It was enjoyable. They were trying to make a political point in inappropriate ways. Um, actually, I'm critical of a lot of my colleagues for not learning the rules. Mm -hmm. Parliamentary rules, people mock them. They, they are wrong to mock them. They have been well designed, and they what they do is if everybody knows the rules, then you are able to get decisions made the best. People said, well, she's very clever. She can do this with the rules. No, you can do things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do through the use of the rules if everybody else doesn't know them. If everybody knows them, they are, they are so structured as to frame the debates well. And in this case, a couple of Republicans were trying to embarrass Nancy Pelosi, arguing that she was doing something for tuna fish out in one of the uh, American territories. And uh, in the House in particular, there were times you could say things and you have to be relevant. And they were asking what are called parliamentary inquiries um, to make political points. Well, a parliamentary inquiry is legitimately an inquiry about what is going on at the current situation in parliamentary terms. It can never be substantive. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I just was not going to let them misuse the rules to make a uh, political point. Do you seem to enjoy that, that back and oh, forth. Oh, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed being able to frustrate them. <laughs> I, you know, frankly, uh, was, was pleased that I knew the rules well enough, and it vindicated mm -hmm. my view that you ought to know the rules, so that uh, what they were hoping for was to come away with the impression that Nancy Pelosi was doing something illegitimate, which she was not. Mm -hmm. I think instead it came across the way you saw it as kind of a, uh, up for Bufo, but uh, it, it, it blocked them from making their points legitimately. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, recently, this is just a few days ago, we're recording this before it's being released, but um, uh, you came out in support of an organization uh, called Openly Secular, um, which is an organization for non-theists uh, advocating for equal rights for non-theists. I, I was interested specifically in the name of the organization, Openly Secular. 
seems to recall some of the terms that are used in the LGBT equality movement. And obviously, you've had a great history in that movement. Do you see similarity? It seems yeah, like- there were some parallels. It, it, it's uh, it's different. Uh, look, there are hierarchies of being discriminated against. I have fought hard for fairness for LGBT people, but I've always been clear. The most vicious and debilitating form of discrimination in America and it's ongoing is race. Mm-hmm. Um, LGBT people were never as badly treated on the whole as as, uh, as black people. Black people did have one advantage over LGBT people, and that is there was a stressful thing that a number of black, uh, a number of gay teenagers have had to go through, which blacks have not had to go through. That is, no black student, no black teenager has ever had to screw up the courage to tell his parents that he was black. They they, mm-hmm. they knew that. But... Um, uh, that it's a silent struggle. Yeah, beyond that, there are uh, there are some similarities, and there were greater similarities with with uh, and and being secular was not as bad in in terms of the impact uh, as being gay and lesbian, but they have this in common, namely that there is a prejudice based on uh, dislike of a particular characteristic that shouldn't be anybody else's business. Mm-hmm. Uh, my being gay has never hurt anybody else. Uh, uh, my being secular and my viewpoint doesn't hurt other people. Um, as long as we understand this, there is this mistaken view on some on the right, uh, uh, Bill O'Reilly, who, who just is ludicrous about it, complaining that people are persecuted for saying Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. I know nobody who has been uh, persecuted for that. People are free to say what they want. They're offended when people say Happy Holidays and not Merry Christmas. Um, and what you get, though, is an aggressive effort to uh, to use religion. The best example is the view that people, because of their own particular religious views, should be able to discriminate against others. And that recently became a policy issue when President Obama issued a rule that said for federal contractors, if you're getting federal money, you cannot discriminate based on people being gay or lesbian, no matter what your religious views are. And uh, the notion that that violates religious freedom is nonsense. We're not talking here about people going about their business and the federal government now comes in and tells them how to run things, although I think there's a legitimacy uh, to some extent for that. But here are people who are going out to get federal money. Mm-hmm. They want to get federal money, which is paid for by my taxes. And they then want to say, okay, we have your taxes to pay for this contract, but you are not eligible to apply for any of them. That's an example of, of uh, where the secular need to be defended. Mm-hmm. They need to be defended against having their taxes taken from them and then used in a way from which they are excluded because people don't like their lack of religious views. It seems like in the kind of uh, the broad brush of equality movements, uh, civil rights laid out a plan um, that uh, LGBT rights uh, mirrored in some ways. And now LGBT rights kind of is, is, yes. is on a roll uh, and it happened very quickly. Um, I, I feel like other uh, other causes are latching onto that same yes, plan. Well, fact, this this is one of them. Maybe uh, marijuana legalization seems to be latching onto the same thing. Well, marijuana is a little different because that's a behavior for everybody. Mm-hmm. But it is true, and, and, and I, I agree with that. I would just push a little further back. Um, and I talk about this in my course. Before World War II, America was a pretty bigoted place. Uh, Harvard had severe quotas on Jews. Um, in fact, Brandeis University was started right after World War II because of the experience of so many Jews in America of uh, their being excluded from the universities. There were Jewish law firms. 
There were also Catholic law firms because the major law firms tended to be uh, white Protestant and, and, and discriminatory. Mario Cuomo, uh, obviously a very bright man, graduates from Fordham Law School, mm-hmm. at that point not one of the top law schools, and he couldn't get a job with one of the Wall Street firms because he was a very ethnic Mario Cuomo. <laughs> and um, the uh, An all-male, by the way. I mean, that's not the way he talked. That's the way they heard him right, yeah. when he spoke very articulately. And um, what you have beginning with the end, what happened was Hitler just scared the crap out of the bigots, in effect. <laughs> I mean, people began to, whoa, whoa, this is where this leads you. So one of the things you saw was a great drop in anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism was a serious problem when I was, uh, when I was 14, deciding what to do with my life, I had to take into account anti-Semitism. Jewish kid today, it's a non-factor in America. Um, the women's movement, so of course race begins. I mean, the, mm-hmm. all the important progress in defeating racism comes after World War II. Um, and uh, in uh, the women's movement, and I do believe the, the LGBT movement picked up from the women's movement, that was in the air, disability people with disabilities. And now I think you have people who, who feel discriminated against because they are not theistic. Mm-hmm. And I do agree with you. That's, that's, those principles apply. Marijuana is a little different. That's a behavior for everybody. Right. Um, although marijuana discrimination really was a, a, a byproduct of marijuana criminalization because marijuana was not illegal until really the 20s and 30s. And then it was because black uh, jazz people and their white customers uh, were doing it, and then hippies. Mm-hmm. There, w- there was an element of that. But yeah, there's no question that uh, people who have been discriminated against because of their religion are, 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 are picking up uh, a series of movements that others mm-hmm. have used. Do you think that the, there's a template now for how these movements... I brought up marijuana because, although it's, it doesn't share the same uh, characteristics as an equality movement, uh, in terms of how it's trying to push forward, it's trying to borrow from the template. I well, guess. I'd say this, the, there's a danger in people seeing a template. One of my problems with the, some of the people in the LGBT movement is that they, they misread the uh, African-American fight for civil rights. They, see, uh, they, they don't see the sophistication, the understanding, the importance of compromising. Um, uh, Martin Luther King was a, a saintly man and a very shrewd politician. And uh, this notion that you always have direct action and that you, uh, you, you always get what you want at once and you never compromise total misreading of the LD, of, of the black movement, and I've had to argue against that among some LGDP people. Um, it varies uh, uh, It varies with, with your numbers, the nature of the prejudice. Um, one thing, though, very much is in common is you go after the rationale. Mm-hmm. You say to the people who favor this policy, why are you doing this? How, how do I hurt you? I mean, I think that's, that's the, the basic argument. And yeah, there is that similarity, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, uh, Put forward your reason. This is a prejudice. I, mean, I think we did that most effectively, frankly, with marriage, because there were all these predictions about how terrible marriage would be. And in that sense, I, I think you're right. I will uh, uh, let me let me modify my initial uh, dissent. The marijuana movement is doing the same as the same-sex marriage movement in one very important case. The argument against it is that it will bring negative social consequences. It clearly will not. Mm-hmm. And uh, people in the fight for legalizing marijuana, which I'm one, I filed the first bill in Massachusetts to legalize marijuana in 1972. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't have an immediate what, success, obvious. Yeah. But um, what, what, uh, 
what they'll be able to point to in Washington and Colorado and elsewhere is the complete absence of well, the, the almost complete absence of any negatives. And that's that's how you, 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 you all the movements do have in common. Let, let's take the anti-arguments at their, uh, at their logical root and combat them. Well, Congressman Barney Frank, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast. <laughs>